Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design. We're um, joined today by Neil Usher. He's Chief Workplace and Change Strategist at GoSpace AI. He's been working with complex change problems for over 40 years, um, and he's a sought-after conference and academic speaker. His new book's really timely and important right now as workplace um, and employees continue to roll around in this period of change and uncertainty. There's a book, Elemental Change, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. And I suggest you all get yourself a copy. Um, Neil, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, delighted to be here. Great. Um, I first met you at Workplace Trends Conference, um, Maggie and Nigel's uh, bash. <laughs> um, can you uh, sort of just first of all, just kick off by telling us about yourself, you know, how you come to do what you do, what your journey's been? Gosh, the journey was entirely unplanned, um, but by the same token, it seemed to be planned at every step that I took, if you see what I mean. So, um, but I've been in the, the business of property, corporate real estate, workplace now for approaching 30 years. Um, I did a master's degree in IT, believe it or not, in 1990-91 and and sort of fell into facilities management by accident, loved it um, and sort of grew my career from there. So every step of the way has really been sort of mainly on the occupier side, most of my time on the occupier side, um, looking at sort of broader portfolios, uh, more more of that sort of journey on a a sort of in a anti-clockwise direction around the property clock, starting with FM, moving into capital projects, workplace design, transaction management, um, and then into sort of, you know, sort of global global and regional property strategy. Um, last couple of years, I've been with Ghostbase AI, which is the first artificial intelligence application for, um, for uh, dynamic, dynamic workplace planning, um, which has been fascinating as well. Um, but, but yes, I've sort of made property and workplace my home really for, for almost 30 years. That's great, thanks. Um, I've talked to you separately about the ghost space AI. I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Um, your your book, Elemental Change, has this, as I said, has this terrific title, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. Obviously, with this COVID and lockdown, I think a lot of people have been thinking, nothing's happened, it's all standing still. Um, but actually, there's so many goalposts that have been moved and um, sort of emotionally, socially, and obviously, especially in terms of the work place um, or where we can conceive our workplace to be I mean what are you seeing um, in the workplace I mean how are people coping and and sort of what do you think are the, the you know the main issues are that people are struggling with in terms of change and what was interesting was I was talking to a friend of mine who's uh, in Milan yesterday yeah. um, you may remember in the early days of the lockdowns in Italy people were sort of playing and singing opera from the balconies and you know, there was this wonderful sort of spirit of, of look, this is really unusual, really different, but we're going to get through this. There was a, um, there was a sort of indomitability about it all, really, in terms of, you know, we, we are going to triumph over this, this pandemic. And I think with the sort of succession of lockdowns and the, and the, the time this has dragged on, um, and, and with, just with vaccines on the horizon and with them starting to be rolled out, there's, there's, there's a sort of you know, injection of hope into all of this. But I, I think we've become sort of progressively more and more exhausted by it all. Um, the uncertainty really as to you know, when, when is this going to start to, start to sort of, uh, you know, be, be, be pushed out of our society. And what, when, I mean, the, the sort of the idea somehow that we'll be returning to a nor- normality. I'm not necessarily sure that normality is a thing um, in any way at all. Um, 
and that really is one of the contentions of the book with with everything flowing that actually you know normality is just a is just a point in time um but uh, but i'm sort of sensing really as well within the workplace sector that um it's very difficult for anyone to actually take any action it's very difficult for anyone to plan anything because there is such a a degree of uncertainty about the future so everyone's almost sort of looking across the start line at the others thinking you know who's going to go first what's 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 who is going to be that first mover who's going to do something really brave really interesting um but 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 i'm not because i'm you know just in case um, and on that basis, no one's really taking that first step. And I, and I think that's really where we are. And then with, with Christmas and end of the year approaching, I think it's been a, you know, a useful point, point for people to say, well, look, you know, if we are going to make any moves, we're certainly not going to make them this side of the holiday. So we'll, we'll sort of have a break, come back in the new year, see how the land's lying and see if we're going to be that, that first mover then. Yeah, I think you're right. I think everybody's, as you say, waiting for someone else to kind of make that move and, and Christmas is coming up and putting a sort of huge stock in it, doesn't it really? Um, I mean, in your um, your books divide into into separate um, sort of like different parts um, and in your opening gambit, your final paragraphs about collaboration and actually the one of the sort of things, your, your analogy of the train sets, I think is spot on. You know, we sort of start down one track and then another train joins. And then before we know it, we're on a completely different track, heading in a completely different direction. Um, obviously, when you get more people involved with things, um, you know, it's, you know, that obviously, you know, things things happen. People have to have different ideas or they have different things. You even mentioned about like a grieving curve where people, where people go up and down and up and down and you've got sort of three or four of those all coming together. Um, I mean, how can people cope with, with, with this? You know, how can people cope with collaborating and, um, and just, and the change? Um, one of the points I make, and I, I, I probably sort of in, in talking about the book post-publication, you know, some of the, you know, and, and you have to sort of be very succinct when you're doing that. So you sort of start to pull out some key points from the book and you, you wonder if they've been made clearly enough in a, in a sort of 60,000 word book. But the idea that uncertainty is our opportunity. Um, yeah, if we think about our personal lives and we think about organizational lives, because nothing is standing still, because everything is interconnected in some way, um, and because sort of life and corporate life in particular doesn't work like it works in a lot of change books that I've read where everything does stand still and, and it's almost like a laboratory and we can conduct these experiments and see what happens. Um, it actually becomes very difficult to plan and very diff, you know very difficult to sort of to, to get to the end of the journey that you've planned in that sense so um you know what i'm what i'm seeing really is that um is that, is that we we need to develop a much sort of closer relationship with change we need to understand that it's our essence a lot of the literature as well seems to estrange us a little from change whereas actually because we are living breathing change um, we're actually very sort of naturally adept at coping with uncertainty and sometimes I don't think we back ourselves enough really in that sense and, and, and back our own sort of resourcefulness and our own ability to navigate uncertainty. And then when we look at large corporations in particular, they're, they're sort of engines that are really designed to remove uncertainty from all of their processes and all of their env the environments in which they operate. Um, and actually by doing so, they're actually, by, by trying to create as much certainty as possible, they're, they're, they're removing the possibilities for innovation and creativity in doing so. They're actually stopping interesting things happening. So whilst I didn't write this book during the sort of COVID era, it was all pretty much drafted and done before, before um, I think what's relevant now really is to, is, is really sort of 
getting across to people that the, the uncertainty that we're facing is actually a fantastic opportunity. It's not something necessarily to be afraid of. It's not something to try and iron out. This is something where we have to actually capture the energy of uncertainty. Um, and this is going to enable us to do amazing things. And I think there's been a you know, there's been some fantastic debate to follow in the whole workplace sector during this this period of time. Um, you know, people are really thinking deeply about um, about sort of the, the present and the potential future, um, probably like never before, really. I think we had another spike of it during the last sort of global recession that we had. Um, and I think we had some really fantastic outcomes from that in terms of the way the workplace develops. I think that period of thought really helped us. So I'm hoping that this period of time and this period of introspection um, makes us much more comfortable with change, makes us sort of feel like we have a, um, you know, a confidence in, in, in dealing with change and thinking about change, and that we actually start to appreciate uncertainty and the movement of all of the parts ahead of us, because that's how we can navigate to a, to a better world of work and a, and a better workplace. So not something to be afraid of. This is really all about um, sort of you know, grasping the opportunities we have, um, understanding those opportunities, but, but using uncertainty to, to navigate. That's really, that's really great. I think anybody listening to that, I think should take heart and um, actually, yeah, embrace it, embrace change. Um, I mean, just obviously this is the Journal of Biophilic Design and it's all about nature and it's about, um, you know, how, how sort of nature, how, when we look at nature, we can, we sort of benefit it. I mean, obviously we see uh, change in nature all the time. I mean, leaves fall off the tree, you know, to enable the, the, the tree to draw in its energy during winter and obviously roses bloom and wilt, um, you know, um, sort of blossoms, you know, the blossom flowers and then it turns into fruit, gets eaten by a squirrel and then gets pooped out and then becomes another tree. <laughs> so, um, you know, change doesn't have to be, and like you say, it doesn't have to be a negative thing actually. And, and sort of like this evolution, you talk about evolution, um, you know, I mean, how do you think people could use even observance of nature processes to help them realize that nothing's forever and that change happens? And it's actually often for the best as in the case of the pooped out fruit, for instance. <laughs> when you were talking about that, I was thinking about, is it the, the cat that, that, uh, that eats coffee beans and we, uh, we, we sort of recycle the other end and they become very expensive coffee. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think sort of looking at nature is a, is a fantastic way to actually consider that perpetuality really of change. Um, it, it is all around us, the signals, the clues that, that change is the essence of our life are, are everywhere. Um, I hadn't actually specifically mentioned that in the book, but now that you've mentioned it, I think it would have been a, would have been a great reference in, in that sense, because, um, you know, it, it never stands still. And actually, one of the things that's been really fascinating um, during this uh, period of not just sort of, you know, going to the station in the morning and getting into town and then coming home half the year in the dark, um, is actually watching the seasons and watching those changes. I've had the, you know, walking the dog and things, had the luxury of actually just sort of in, in very similar situations around around where I live, being able to see the change of the seasons in great detail, like like never before, probably. They're more aware of that change than than ever. Um, and so, yeah, so any, anybody who is in any doubt at all that uh, that, that changes the, the essence of our lives should, should just really go for that walk in the walk in the forest, I think. Yeah, it's really true. Um, on on so on, I'm just going to I'm, I'm name checking the book again, but Elemental Change, page 49. Um, <laughs> 
evolution and transformation you talk about sort of dna and, and sort of and also cells consuming another um you even you sort of you have obviously ancient greek references which i love thank you very much for that and ancient reference obviously personally i i, I love this it kind of resonates uh, highly with me um, but you you talk about the gladiator versus the accountant which made me smile um tridents versus spreadsheets um and obviously the accountant usually wins but that's because the initiative is like sort of wrapped up in like you know sort of dressed up as a gladiator almost um and you see talk about transformation and companies buy another um obviously cells eating another cell kind of thing and absorbing you kind of it's a really interesting sort of biology and um i mean that's what i, I really i must admit i mean anybody who's gonna you know i i, I do stress people to re, uh, buy the book because the um it's ex absolutely excellently written it's really accessible and um it's fun as well it's actually a fun book you learn through um through the the the, the, the yeah, say the analogies that you've you uh, you use um can you can you sort of explain maybe how transformation versus evolution I mean and sort of the nature of companies can you explain how it should be you know maybe it should be a process of evolution um, what's interesting is that just about every change initiative you hear about is, is sort of inflated into being this transformation you know if it's not a transformation it's not relevant important um, not worthy of enough t attention so we, we often talk about transformational change as being the one that we should take notice of just about every book that's been written about change since COVID really, or published since COVID has, has all been about, you know, leading transformation. So I, I just wanted to sort of, you know, do a little research and just familiarize myself with the sort of roots of the terms really in this sense. And I found it fascinating understanding that, that a transformation is actually when one single cell consumes another cell. Um, obviously being a single cell, it doesn't particularly think about it. Um, it just kind of does it. And, you know, most of the time it's fatal, um, but that is a transformation. And on the odd occasion um, of all the single cells consuming other single cells, it creates something new. Um, so really my conclusion was that, that, that sort of transformations are actually very small things. Uh, transformations are, are important, but they almost just sort of puncture that timeline in a way. And that timeline itself is evolution. So, so transformation is not necessarily a bigger thing than evolution. So what I was really trying to stress was that, that evolution's probably probably got a bad name. It's considered to be boring and it's, it is the accountant and the spreadsheets. It's considered to be the staff that just kind of rolls on, but really, you know, what it's all about is big kind of table thumping, chest beating transformation. And, and actually in reality, that's not necessarily the case. Um, I think we need a much, um, you know, we, we need to sort of reappraise our understanding of what evolution is, um, because actually evolution lies, it sits at the heart of this. And evolution can be fast. Doesn't this, you know, I, I sort of, I checked on this, and it, I think it takes about a million years for a sort of, you know, a, a fish to grow legs, you know, in terms of evolutionary terms. So we always think about this as being something really slow and really dull. But actually evolution is something we need to understand a lot more um, and probably stop using the term transformation quite as much. There is nothing wrong with saying, look, this, this particular change initiative is an incredibly important evolution. Um, you know, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, it's true. And evolution obviously is, is about turning. It's about, it's about moving. Yeah. So, um, I mean, similarly, you mentioned adaption versus adoption. And um, obviously we see that all the time in nature, sort of going back to what you say, when animals adapt to their environment. Um, I mean, is that what you're saying here that we should also adapt? Um, yeah, adaptation is much more closely related to 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 um, to evolution, um, and most most change programs in 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 workplace. Uh, and I'm always very interested, actually, and I'll, I'll reference it here in the in the 
comparison really between sort of the, the the software and IT industry and the workplace industry, but because because this is really where I first noticed the difference. But because where well, there's a, usually a sort of a physical relocation, you know, whether it's coming out or of existing workplace for a while and then going back into the same or moving building or something, there's always a sort of a clear line. And so the change process, um, just sort of the leadership of the change process usually begins too late in that whole process. And so, you know, what we're actually doing is we're sticking things on. We're actually asking people to, 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 to adopt new behaviours, do something different. Um, and it's a little bit like um, downloading an app onto your phone. You know, we, we, we have a look, we decide whether we like it or not, or if it's got a use or not. Sometimes we might do that and keep it. So there's a bit of a window of opportunity there for that that adopted behavior to stick, but a lot of the time we, we reject it. And that's why adoption-led change programs very, very rarely succeed. This idea that we'll sit you all in a room, we'll tell you what new behaviors you need, we'll tell you what the protocols are and, 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 and hope that they work. Whereas actually what this is about is allowing people to adapt. So we're allowing them to evolve, which is we give people the knowledge, the resources, um, we give people the information they need and we engage with them and we get them involved in, in the change process such that they're changing themselves. We're not changing people, we're enabling them to change themselves. So we're enabling them to adapt. So there are those, you know, in, a, in the same way that evolution is punctured by transformations, um, the process of adaptation may be punctured by some the adoption of certain behaviours. Um, but actually what we want to create deep and lasting change is for people to adapt. And as I point out in the book, evolution doesn't work in reverse. It may be that something that happens in the future bears a resemblance to something that's happened in the past, but that is still in itself evolution. We don't go back to something, we, we evolve into that again, and other circumstances will have changed. So if we start doing something in the future that looks like something we did in the past, it won't be the same because so much else around us will have changed at the same time. That's exactly true. Um... I mean, obviously, I can't begin to touch on everything that you've um, you mentioned in the book, um, but there's one thing that I did find quite interesting um, in uh, in part is part two. Yeah, it's in part two. You've got and I'm just going to show the screen there. So, so you've got this hexagon. Obviously, I, I love hexagons. Nature loves hexagons. Bees love hexagons. And we obviously we all love honey. Um, but um, I mean, I just thought this um, hexagon. And then how you go on to describe each element of that hexagon and um, how you use it and adapt to it and all this sort of thing. I just think it's brilliant, but it's, it's not just for workplace. I find it, I think it would be really useful for people, for life, actually, the way, I mean, you can adapt everything that you said, I think for uh, living living a better life, to be fair, and, and trying to help you focus on your new journey or your new um, thing. But can you tell us a little bit about the hexagon? I mean, maybe if you can sort of touch on the different elements yeah. obviously there's, there's a lot of words that you've written in here which i don't i don't <laughs> to kind of quickly press the in about four minutes but um yeah if you could if you could just touch on that i just um just to give people a flavor of what it is that'd be great thank you sure yeah the second part of the book is really all about preparing um i actually was reflecting this morning actually walking the dog on the fact that um yes the cub scout motto when i was a when i was a youngster was always be prepared and i and i didn't realize at the time just how important that was really in thinking about leading change um, but we always talk about planning in change terms, but actually planning is a sort of subset of one of the components of what I've created, which is a, an operating system of change. And you're right in the sense that it, it should be applicable to our own lives as much as it is to corporate life. You know, the, change isn't different the other side of the revolving door. It's, it's the same everywhere in that sense. 
um, and the approaches can be the same and they can be commonly applied. But what I was trying to get at really with the operating system was something that enables us to be prepared for this uncertainty because we very rarely have perfect information because everything ahead of us and to the side of us is constantly moving and because it's all interrelated and, and navigating those paths is incredibly difficult. We need to have um, a framework in our minds um, that where we're aware of as well in terms of sort of how much of all of this we have and it's interplay to be prepared to deal with that uncertainty. If we're saying uncertainty is an opportunity, an opportunity is the first of those components of the operating system, um, then we need to have that operating system in place. And again, it's another term borrowed from software industry in, in that sense, because the other thing I think about operating systems is they're quite unglamorous. You know, we get the little you know notifications through update your operating system, but you know, and we notice a few little changes, but most of what's going on with an operating system is sort of below the line in a way. We, we look at the applications, the things that sit on top as being the, the things that are sort of interesting and glamorous. And, and that, but the opera, nothing works without an operating system, nothing at all these days. Um, otherwise, it's just a, a box of wires uh, uh, that's completely useless. Um, and the hexagon really came from, and the sort of using six came from the sort of the, the structure of the last book in terms of the six E's of a fantastic workplace. So I thought, well, you know, forget six for a moment and let's just see what we think the components of an operating system of change would be and 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 sort of landed on six again first of those being the opportunity um very often we rush straight into the vision but sort of mapping that opportunity i think it's really important to set out you know the um how we got here where we are now and where where we want to head to in the future it's a it's more detailed than a than a vision statement but but actually understanding that opportunity and we can't forget as well that it's it's got a a time limit on it. Opportunities don't last forever. It's something that we need to we need to action or, or not. And then we move into that vision. Um, I think the vision is better positioned as a question than it ever is as a statement. And the, the real sort of contribution, I think, in this book is to look at sort of asking questions of people, which engages them, it makes them feel that they're part of developing the solution. And also they sort of hijack the brain. You know, if we ask someone a question, it, they, it's almost impossible not to try and answer it. It's very difficult to ignore a question. So we, we do engage people in that sense. Um, and then, um, then we're looking at evidence and I really focus on sort of both data and story. I think story is often underplayed. Um, I'm seeing quite a lot of uh, talk and, and writing now about the importance of sort of data stories data on its own needs to be needs to be captured in stories. We need to tell stories and we need to hear them from people as well. It's important data gathering is, is listening to the stories that get told in organizations. Um, then leadership is, is, is an inevitable contribution, I think, in this sense. Uh, so I have, a, I have a little look at leadership as distinct from management. Um, and then, um, then looking at trust, I think trust is vital, not just on a personal level, but on a, on a group and a team level as well, which is where I get into the sort of a, a deeper look really at, at the idea of psychological safety, where, which I think is sort of missing some components. And I think the term psychological safety is decades old, but we're still struggling to define it. You know, if, if we've got this vital tool in corporate life that we can't actually describe and not many people know what it is but it is so vital then then we're missing something here and i've i've sort of rechristened it including physical safety to be elemental safety um, um and then we're really looking at the resources we need for our for our um 
for our operating system and and you know that can include everything from sort of the other sort of team members we need to bring in through through to sort of you know money and administration and all the other sorts of practical things but the plan you know i talked about the difference between preparation and planning the plan sits within the resources it's a subset of resources um and sorry my my dog is actually drinking out of his bowl so if you can hear a slurping noise in the background it's not me it's the dog over in the corner um, <laughs> But um, but the resources that we need um, include that plan, and that plan has to be you know highly flexible, soft planning, the need for soft planning rather than rigid planning. I've seen so many change initiatives struggle because people, having spent time and effort planning, rigidly adhere to this plan, and they won't deviate from it, even when they can see that the conveyor belt is heading over the cliff. No, that's the plan, we have to deliver it, and then... You know, the finger usually gets pointed at the execution of the plan later. So, so that's a very quick walkthrough of those six components of the operating system. But my contention is that these should be in place at all times. You don't bring all these things together for a change initiative. These are things that organizations and, and things that we as people really need to have at our disposal at all times, because we never quite know we're gonna, when we're going to need to draw on them. Um, but we have to be aware of where we're at now with each one of those. And the use of the spider chart in the hexagon, hexagon is quite useful for planning where we think we're at and where we need to get to. We can identify those gaps and we can do what we need to do to be as prepared as possible. Part three is actions. Um, leading on from that, um, is there one action from there that you'd like to discuss a little bit more, maybe in terms of like how many leaders want, you know, quick fixes? I mean, they always want quick fixes, but I probably want more quick quick fixes quicker than ever before. Um, obviously, the knee jerk reactions we're seeing at the moment and cheap ones. Um, but I mean, especially as people come back to work, I mean, is there anything that you'd like to um, just touch on? Um, I should say I do take apart the whole idea of quick wins. I, I, I call them the fast food of the change industry. Um, and, I, and I think we overly focus on those. Um, I won't say too much more about it as I'll spoil it. Um, I mean, the, the, the nine elements of change, there's a periodic table, which find a very useful sort of structure really for these things. And, you know, again, argue in a similar way to the last book, argue that these, these, these uh, elements need to be present in, in leading any change initiative. And they're in three groups. So I'm informed, I'm engaged, and I'm involved. And very often as we move sort of left to right through those three groups, we find that change initiatives may stop uh, uh, just informing people. You know, people, people might be told what's gonna happen, but they don't get anything else. Sometimes they stop at a, a level of engagement, you know, a little bit of sort of, you know, a few emotional triggers and a little bit of sort of bringing people in. And very often, you know, they don't include any degree of involvement at all. So involvement is the group that I think is probably the most, you know, un underrated, under described and, uh, you know, under commented on really in, in terms of the, um, in terms of our, our whole approach to change and the actions we'll take. But there's one, there's one, there's one sort of component, if you like, of, uh, of getting people involved that I find fascinating and it's known as tummeling. And uh, tumblers are, if, if that's because it's a, a German word, um, or the root is a German word. It's actually, um, it, it actually then sort of transformed into a into a, a, a Yiddish word. And what it means is those people at a at a wedding who encourage others to dance. 
So, you know, whether I can actually say tumbler or tumbling, I'm not sure because it because of the root of the word really and the way that the word has evolved. But um, but, but for the sake of for the sake of the book, I'm I'm going to do that. But a, a tumbler is someone who does things differently and talks about doing things differently. These aren't people who are appointed. They're not given a formal role in a project. You know, you are the tumbler. Here's your brief. Here's your role description. You go off and do this. These are people who just you know, are in that process of adaptation. They are seeing that there's some opportunity. They're seeing that they can actually work differently. And, and they're doing that very visibly. And they're talking to their colleagues about doing it as well, because they can see the benefit and they're experimenting and they can they can see that there's something in this. Um, the actual effect of tunnelers is very low key, um, but hugely important in a project. And it's an idea that came from, um, uh, a friend of mine who was who 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 was aware of it from a, a website in the in the US called Tumblevision TV, where they picked up on this, um, and you know really powerful. His role was as a, a social artist in residence at an incubator center, and his role was there really just just to talk to people. Just they were all doing completely separate things, working on separate innovations and separate projects. But it, they were very aware that if everybody just sort of sat in their cabins and there wouldn't be any kind of um, you know, collaborative life to this incubator center. So his role was just to, to look at what people were doing, was to talk about it, talk to other people about what everyone else is doing and to, and to act as this sort of social conduit effectively in this space. And it was amazing to see the benefit of that. Uh, he went on a couple of trips uh, and was away for several weeks and and in talking to him when he returned he was sort of very aware of how people had sort of you know almost retreated into their little units as a result of him not being there but that sort of that kind of social stimulus that he gave it that tumbling that he was involved in is is incredibly important so there are, I think there are things going on in change initiatives that no one ever really talks about that are actually vitally important uh, this is part of involvement this is part of sort of involvement that doesn't have a, a particular instruction. No one's given a role, no one's given, no one's told what to do. You know, there's a lot of roles in change projects like change champions and things where people have a brief and, and, and groups that have to get together and have to do things. This is just completely voluntary activity. So actually finding out who your tumblers are, giving them the space, giving them the resources they may need to, to continue to tumble. I think is absolutely fascinating and, and is a vital component of, of, of leading change. Now, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, um, I think really just, just to reiterate, I think that, that we have nothing to fear from change. Um, I think you know if if we continually say to people over and over again that people are afraid of change, and I and I, I hear it far too many times, then we'll start to believe this. Um, but actually, we, we have nothing to fear from this. Um, I, I think you know what we really need to do is understand that that change is our essence, um, and 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 be very comfortable with it, and understand that uncertainty is is a fantastic opportunity. So, um, I'm really optimistic about 2021. Um, you know, there's I was saying the other day there's a there's an old adage that you know if you've uh, if you can keep your um, head while all others around you are losing theirs, then you probably misunderstood the situation entirely. Um, and that could be me, but um, I'm still really optimistic about next year. I think that the more we grow into dealing with uncertainty and the uncertainty of the world and the immediate environment, the more we'll start to see those opportunities. But when we see them, it's about doing something with them. It's about understanding them. It's about mapping them um, and bringing that into our operating system of change 
deploying those elements in leading change and, and, and making amazing things happen. Sounds good to me. Um, and sort of obviously that we ask a, a question right at the end of the podcast each time. And um, and it's always about if you could brush the world or the workplace with a with a with a brush of biophilia. <laughs> um, I mean, in your case, I mean, what would it look like in terms of maybe improved um, adoption or adaption <laughs> um, of <laughs> and implementation of change? Um. I mean, I've, I've long been a fan of um, sort of biophilic approaches to workplace. Um, the last major corporate project I did had 24,776 plants in the building. Um, the reason I remember that number is because it's, it's just so unrounded and so so sort of left field, but that's, that's how many plants we, we ended up putting in. I think um, sort of relating that to change, I think, uh, you know, I'd like sort of biophilic designs to feel natural and I know that sounds sort of almost almost sort of silly to say but um I think they look awkward when they're too contrived I think it has to be a sort of natural feeling it has to be quite organic it has to it has to have some flow and I'm also fascinated by um how we transition from external to internal environments and how and how that becomes as seamless as possible there's a philosopher Deleuze who called it the fold, the fold between internal and external spaces. Um, it's a very sort of difficult concept and I'm not necessarily sure I entirely grasped it myself, but um, you know, the danger is sometimes the, the sort of the external environment, the internal environment can look so different, even, even with the sort of biophilic approaches we apply internally. So, you know, how can we possibly make that transition between internal and external space as seamless and as natural as possible? Um, and because most of the natural world, even when it's curated, is is you know still still does surprising things and interesting things, we have to allow those surprising and interesting things to happen internally as well. If we've just got sort of you know if we just take this as you know, here's some timber and here's some rigid rows of pot plants and here's a shard of light, then then it's going to feel like we're we're forcing something. So I think really it's about making sure that it feels natural, feels organic, doesn't feel forced, and and, and doesn't feel contrived. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.